Welcome into episode 99 of the House of L podcast. I'm Lawrence Holmes. Yeah, we're still doing our podcast. We are up to episode 99. Man, this started almost two years ago. I didn't know that we would take it this far. Who knew hip hop would take it this far? But I'm excited because I already know like what episode 100, episode 101, and episode 102 are going to be. And it's going to be great conversations and amazing guests over the the next stretch of the podcast, including today's episode. Now, let me tell you, initially, the way this episode was supposed to go is it was supposed to be a kickoff to the baseball season. That was the whole idea. The way that I got Patrick Mooney to sit down with me was because he had been at spring training. We we hung out a little bit at spring training. And I said, man, you know, I really want to get you on the podcast, but I know that you're here. And I said, well, we can do like a Zoom. And, and you know, if you want it, like one night you're bored in the hotel out in Arizona. He said, well, I'm actually coming back to Chicago for a few days. And I said, really? So, like, yeah, you know, Sahadev and I switch off. And so I'm going to be in town if you want to get me in studio. So this was a month ago. And I got him in studio and we talked about a whole lot of stuff, which you'll hear momentarily. But the idea was that this is the perfect type of person to kick off baseball season. That you have a a someone who covers the Cubs intimately. That's there with the team, has seen the rise of this era of Cubs baseball. And there you go. You can kind of kick off the the season. I was so happy to get some of my favorite baseball people on the podcast because they had some time in the winter, like Gordon Wittenmeyer was able to come on and be on. And, and it was fortuitous that Patrick was available. He was at home and he was available to come in and sit down with me for an hour. And now everyone's available. Like we're all just sitting around kind of twiddling our thumbs trying to be the best citizens that we can, not leaving the house, like that sort of thing, which is why I'm like, okay, let's put this out anyway. It, it it doesn't matter. Like there's a lot of preview stuff that people have to leave on the table because there's no season. Not that we spend most of the time talking about baseball. We spend most of the time talking about Patrick's career. And and I'm glad that he had time. He's uh He's someone that I really like, very smart, very serious guy. And he he looks at things in a very serious way. And his approach to the job of beat reporter, I think, is a, a, a solid one. He also, apparently, from you know, listening to him in here, is, seems to be a fan of House of L, which is great. Because I love when smart people in media actually like what we're doing. And they get to hear their colleagues talk about all sorts of stuff. So I'm glad that I got a chance to sit down with him. His road has been really interesting, too. Like, even the TV stuff on NBC Sports Chicago and dealing with that and now finding himself at The Athletic and whether it was him or Sahadev, I talked with Sahadev a few episodes ago. You should go back and listen to that episode. The amount of freedom that those guys have been given over at The Athletic to cover baseball I think is cool, and I think that it's a trend. I think we're going to see more places try to cover things like The Athletic does. So we talked about that too. So let's get after it. Episode 99 of the House of L podcast. 
from The Athletic, Cubs beat reporter Patrick Mooney. Do you remember the first time you had ever heard of The Athletic? I do. I remember it vividly. Uh, it was the week of Cubs convention. And as you know, they have those like events where they stop at a school or whatever um, and, you know, paint a wall or something like that and write, write a check. And John Greenberg was there. And I knew he was up to something. I didn't know exactly what it was. Uh, and he kind of explained how he, he explained what the athletic was. And he said he was there kind of collecting quotes and interviews and details so that when the site went live, um, they would have content. And so uh, I thought it was an interesting idea. I think like everyone at the time, you weren't sure if uh, the people above would have the kind of stomach for it, uh, particularly when you realize how expensive kind of reporting is. But, you know, I've known John a long time. Uh, I mean, Scott Powers and I go go way back, and obviously Sadiv and I had competed against each other, so I knew they had good people behind it. You just never really know, you know, how it's going to work at a corporate level. And to be honest, that's every media business ever. Uh, you know, if you look back or if you look forward, you never really know what's going to happen. You just have to do your best and ride it out and do what you do of kind of diversify and find places where you can, um, you know, do good work. I think in a, a media market where we keep seeing shrinking, it was such a good thing, I think, for media that the athletic was born because we're fighting in this crisis of is there going to be a place for us to go to work tomorrow? And it seems like every day, like everything's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So did you feel like it was a – Genuine opportunity or a massive leap of faith? Uh, I was lucky because by the time I had signed on there, I'd left NBC Chicago. Um, They'd already hired Ken Rosenthal. um, And in my conversations with the one of the founders of the company, you know, we both before I could even say it, he was saying, you know, baseball is a big part of what we're going to do. We have Ken Rosenthal kind of anchoring a vertical. Uh, I had seen what Sahadev and John and really the entire staff had done to that point. Um, so I felt that I was joining at a good time in that they hadn't hired like everyone else in sports media yet. So I felt like I got good um, kind of interface, I guess, over the phone uh, with people who were running the company. And obviously I trusted John um, and knew how talented people like Sahadev and John and Lauren Commodore were. So uh, I think it was both. I think if you're in the media business, you have to kind of, you know, take leaps. And, um, you know, they really made a an aggressive, compelling offer. And, I, you know, when people like Ken Rosenthal and Stuart Mandel are signing up, you feel like, you know, they've got a, a chance. And I, I don't think anyone really saw it uh, accelerating the way it did uh, this is now my year, beginning of year three. I don't think anyone saw what happened the previous two years, the way it exploded in, in that regard. How do you think the athletic has changed the way sports is covered? Because when I had thought of it in here, we were having a discussion about how the way that he writes and what he writes, I don't know if there was ever going to be a place for that in heritage media. 
And I'm so happy that there is a place like that. So what's been your experience as far as putting together stories, pitching stories, and being given the freedom to kind of see where they go? Yeah, I think I want to make a blanket statement of I'm not trying to sound arrogant here because I think that's kind of an issue of when you're talking about yourself or talking about media. Um, You don't want to seem like you have it all figured out or your company does, but I think they've given us a ton of freedom. Um, There's not uh, a whole lot of oversight. There there isn't kind of this demand to constantly – kind of feed the beast. I mean, you still have to deliver. There's no doubt they're, they have metrics after metrics looking at how consumers uh, kind of engage with our product. There's no doubt that Big Brother in that regard is watching. But there isn't like this kind of, you know, you have to do three stories a day and shoot four flip cam videos and do a pot. Like there's kind of a sense of I think what any, not just media company, but any content company, the real battle is not against one another. It's for people's attention spans of like, you got, we got a TV on right here behind your right shoulder. Uh, when you need people, to turn that off, I can turn no, it no, off. No, 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 no. In general, if you're watching a game, you're, you're on Twitter, you're checking Instagram, you might be getting text messages. You have to, you know, produce something, whether you're Netflix, the score, Chicago Tribune, whatever it is, your website, you have to grab people's attention. I think they... Uh, kind of implicitly understand that concept. When did you know you could write? Um, I guess I always liked writing. Um, I don't know. Maybe because I was just really bad at math and science. Uh, That was going to be the next part of my question. Like, what drove you to writing? I think it would be just kind of growing up. I grew up in the New York, New Jersey area. My parents are from the Bronx. They're both, uh, you know, first, second generation Irish and just growing up in our house. You know, my uncles would just tell stories just nonstop. Like they were just, you just kind of like, they'd walk in the door, they'd sit down, they would just talk for hours. And we grew up, uh, the New York Times was essentially a local paper at that time. So on Sundays we'd have that, you know, on our kitchen table. Uh, the Newark Star-Ledger at that time was just a, a great newspaper, uh, not just a sports section. Uh, had a lot of talented people. So that's kind of how I learned how to read. And I guess that that's kind of what put me on uh, on this path. What were those stories like that your, your, your parents and your uncles are telling? Uh, let's see. There'd be a lot of F-bombs dropped in <laughs> as... Uh, as verbs and nouns and adjectives, uh, but just know my my grandfather Patty Mooney, who who died before I was born, but I was you know named after him. He came over from Ireland around the age of nineteen, uh, I think, um, and just kind of them growing up in the Bronx and the in the baby boom. I mean, they just like they went to, I think it was a a Catholic school where like the eighth grade had like eight classes of 50, something like that. It was like one of the biggest like wow. parishes in, in the country. And so it's kind of a, a time and place that's really hard to identify now. But we grew up with every uh, kind of, you know, holiday hanging out at my grandma's or my, my aunt's a nun in the Bronx. We'd go to the convent. Just kind of, they would just talk f- for hours. And I think that's probably where the storytelling um, passion came from. Big family? No, not per- particularly big. I mean, my my dad was one of four. My mom uh, was one of four as well. But just we were all kind of 
concentrated in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area and would spend a lot of time, um, yeah, just kind of rolling in and uh, letting my dad's older brothers just kind of hold court for <laughs> hours at a time. Well, if it's not too private, I'd love to know, like, what was your experience at the convent like? Like, what's that like for a child? Uh, no, it's cool. I mean, they they had a big playground next door. They still do. My Aunt Mary, um, still the principal there, uh, St. John's for Sossman in the Bronx. And no, it was a great, great place to go because for hosting, she had like restaurant size refrigerators and stoves and she just loved to host. And that was just kind of, it's funny, my wife jokes about it now, like she never really envisioned like going to like... You know, my aunt's like Jubilee when she was like 50 years a nun to see like nuns doing the Macarena. Like that kind of like blew her mind. <laughs> but like my sister and I looked at each other like, well, this is our this is our childhood, you know. And so it was just uh, very family oriented. And um, like I said, they just there's love, love telling telling stories. And that's kind of where I think it kind of subconsciously sunk in. I mean, they grew up reading, you know, the New York City tabloids, the Daily News, and we'd get those at home too, and I would just kind of devour those, and that's where it it kind of filtered in. Usually with radio people, like, there's a gateway broadcaster that gets you into it. Like, for me, it was Steve Dahl and Doug Banks and Tom Joyner when I was a kid. Is it the same way for writers? Did you have favorite sports writers or even news writers when you were younger yeah i'm trying to think off the top of my head it was more the kind of the section like the the new york daily news like my dad brought that home just like seeing that uh because at that time you know i was growing up i was a huge knicks fan and so just seeing the bulls just like devastate you know my favorite team every every spring and uh the star ledger was really they kind of uh pretty much had a New York sports section. Uh, they covered all the New York teams really, really well. And that was something that every, at the breakfast table, you know, every morning my dad would kind of like grab his section, he'd give me the sports section, and we'd kind of go from there. We'd trade, you know, it's how really, honestly, I've told that to some friends of mine now, you know, had worked at the Star Ledger, not the exact same time, but like Tim Brown from Yahoo or Mark Carrig, who I now work with, you know, they worked at the, the Star Ledger at different points. I told him I like legitimately learned how to read uh, from from that newspaper. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And and now you're you're here doing this. How do you how did you get to Chicago? I went to Northwestern for a graduate program, and that was kind of how I uh, wound up here. And I covered uh, preps for the Sun Times for a while, kind of in their Western bureau, and that's how I got to know like Adam Johns and, and Scott Powers, we kind of overlapped um, during that time. And now it's kind of funny when we get together as coworkers at The Athletic and, you know, Adam covers the Bears and Scott covers the Blackhawks. I mean, we still use a lot of the same principles that we did working for the Sun-Times of just kind of covering a beat and trying to come up with original ideas and being accountable uh, to people uh, and knowing that people – even if it's a much smaller audience, they'll still be hanging on every word you're writing when you're covering, you know, a, whatever a state basketball game or, or whatever it was, a high school football game. People are still, you know, really into it and demand uh, a certain level of professionalism and accountability. I used to work the desks for preps at the Southtown 
and that was one of oh, the yeah. first jobs that I had doing it. What are some of the things that you felt like you learned back then that make you a good journalist now? I think it's just, um, you know, Moon Mullen, who you know well, he, the way he had explained it to me when I first started at what was then Comcast Sportsnet Chicago, he had just been hired and we were supposed to like go to lunch, which wound up being him just buying us drinks like in the middle of the day on like a Tuesday, which that's was, what, that's which about was great, right. which was great. Uh, super insightful. And he said, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if you're just kind of a, a cop on the beat, you kind of have to know your neighborhood. You kind of have to walk the streets. You have to talk to people. You can't constantly be on like with your recorder going. You just have to kind of <clears throat> nurture those relationships and, and kind of pay attention uh, and and think ahead. And I think the kind of central principles of, of beat writing are the same whether you're covering the White the White House, the Bulls, Hollywood you know, whatever industry it is, it's still, it's still the same, still the same like concepts that you have to adhere to. How would you say access has changed? Because to walk the beat, as Moon would say, you used to be able to do that a lot more easily. Even when I was covering a beat every day, it was a lot easier back then. How has that changed over the last few years? That's a good question. I think baseball is a little different than the NFL. Like I don't know how those Bears guys do it. It's so like, it's such a refreshing thing. I where what was happening? I was at Cubs. I came to Wrigley one day, and Darvish was throwing a simulated game, and I was watching it. And Bruce was like, "You can sit down." I was like, <laughs> "What are you talking about?" He's like, "You want to record this?" I'm like, "Yeah, can I?" He's like, "Yes, it's baseball. It's not the." I was so blown away. By that, as someone who covered the Bears for nine seasons, I didn't know that you guys were living like that. And honestly, it made me happy that I was able to do some stuff. Yeah, baseball is a little different. It has changed uh, since I started. That was 2010. But to be honest, I don't have the full scope of some of the other guests you've had on here who you have been covering Major League Baseball for a lot longer. I think some of these changes – had kind of already been enacted, you know, by the time I started meeting the daily kind of manager press conference where it was, uh, where it's very kind of sanitized and controlled and not just, you know, Lou Pinella sitting in a chair like the one you're in now with his feet up on the desk like that. I never saw that, but I, I think in general, you know, baseball is better in that regard. And then, you know, if it's tougher for us, no one cares. Like the last thing, you want to do is complain about that. Just, you know, you know, I think the phrase is like, you don't like it, play better, like for guys in the minor leagues. And I think it's the same thing here. There are ways at Wrigley, whether it's making an extra phone call during the week before you get there. Uh, I mean, you'll be back in spring training soon. Guys coming off the field after the workout. Uh, there's some ways around it, but yeah, there. it's not, I can't say the access is getting better and better, but it's not terrible particularly when you look at the rest of the media landscape what's it been like to cover this group of cubs executives on the baseball side i think they're pretty fair i mean i uh don't have any particular particular issues with them i'm not friends with them either it's just kind of i think they um certainly 
pay attention. Uh, I think they're pretty deliberate, uh, sometimes maybe to their own detriment of overthinking things. But look, I mean, I've never met Ryan Pace. I'm not a Bears fan. I've never covered the NFL. But to me, I think it's kind of absurd that he only talks what, maybe two, three times a year? Maybe twice. Like the combine and the beginning of training camp? Mm-hmm. I mean... And the end of the year, if... When when he fires another coach or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so so three times. So, I mean, I mean, you see how Jed and Theo operate. I mean, there are times they're busy and they don't return every single text all the time, but, I mean, they're always available. I mean, they're on this radio station. I realize there's, you know, certain relationships between the radio station and, and the Cubs, but, I mean, they go on other radio stations, too. Yep. I mean, they're, if you have questions about the Cubs, they are constantly answering them. I mean, Theo, his end of, even Jed was saying uh, the other day in Arizona of how, even he's kind of amazed of watching Theo going for, like, an hour, 20 minutes for some of those end-of-season press conferences. I mean, he stays until the last possible question is asked, and I think if you're a Cubs fan, you have to appreciate that because, you know, it's obviously helpful for us. It's They definitely find it helpful as well. They get something out of it. But in general, they treat fans with respect, and I know you have a great relationship with Joe Madden. It was the same way of how much he talked and, you know, how often he was accessible, and they, they don't share everything, but they're not fundamentally dishonest, and they don't look at, you know, kind of the media and fans is like total rubes and are, you know, won't even bother to take questions from them. I, I That's what I will never understand about kind of the Bears as they're currently constituted. It seems like a very fertile playground for you guys to work in where you have a team president and a general manager that understand your jobs. And maybe that's where I don't know if Ryan yeah. Pace understands the job. I don't know if a lot of NFL coaches or executives do. The the interplay that happens, the the media as a conduit conduit to the fans. I don't know if they get that. The, the NFL is so big and can't fail that there's an automatic like arrogance that goes with anyone who's in charge of it. Not that there isn't in baseball. There there definitely are, but from afar, I can tell you that I've appreciated their accessibility, they seem like smart guys. Like they seem both smart and savvy. I do think that what you said is is spot on though, where sometimes I feel like they maybe overthink things. <laughs> but I appreciate the fact that they are so open to teaching the game mm-hmm. to the people who cover it from their perspective. Cause that's a big that's a big moment. Like I need to become as much of an expert on what I'm covering as I can. And yes, there are steps that I can take on my own to do that, but to learn from people who actually have practical experience in working in it is extremely valuable. Yeah, and I've never met Ryan Bass, even when I bring this up around kind of people who cover the Bears. I think they seem to like him personally. Like I have no, I don't think it's a reflection on his, you know, character as a boss or anything like that. But I think it it is also kind of revealing. And, you know, Theo, what was it? He worked on the Yale student newspaper or whatever, and he grew up reading Peter Gammons in the Boston Globe. And 
same as Jed Hoyer in terms of kind of where he grew up and the Boston Globe at that time was like the, you know, sports section uh, in the country. So I, I do think you're right that they, it's helpful for us. Um, it kind of brings the fans in and they certainly needed that, you know, when they were losing a hundred games, like I think they got, you know, there was a benefit of the doubt coming in with the Boston resume, but also just, you know, they did kind of let people in and try and explain what they were thinking. And, you know, certainly they pushed, you know, the Chris Bryant's out there. Um, and I think it helped build up some of that, you know, goodwill, which is now like completely evaporated, but that's a whole, whole nother episode. Well, you brought up Joe Madden. Let me ask you a question about covering Joe Madden. It seems like when he walked in the door, you know, all the possibilities became open for the Cubs. Walk me through what that ride was like with him in particular. Uh, let's see. He, the first time I've met him very briefly, um, at like a winter meetings once, and then I was talking to Chris Archer once when the Rays were playing the White Sox on the South Side. Uh, and he was really cool. He like he interrupted us, but was very polite about it. Um, and then said, "Oh, you guys keep talking." Like he was, and I think with Joe, it's kind of what you see is what you get. Like I was able, fortunate enough with to go with a couple uh, former colleagues of mine at I think it was still called CSN at the time, but we actually went to Hazleton and like you know he took us around, uh, gave us the ride along of showing where he grew up and. We went to. Did you meet Beanie? Met Beanie. Went to the third base luncheonette or whatever it was called. And um, the thing that I always say about Joe is like, as you know, there's not a huge difference from when the microphones are on or off. Like maybe he'll, you might curse a little more when the microphones aren't off. I thought he was very respectful about in that way. Whenever he saw, he always tried to keep it clean and he was very patient with anyone. It didn't really matter where you worked. Like he was always willing to listen to your question and give you uh, a good answer. But uh, we were there in Hazleton and he was running this clinic for coaches and Rick Sutcliffe showed up and um, he said, he like kind of sidled up to me. It's hard to do when you're like six foot five and have red hair. Uh, But he had flown from San Diego and he was like, uh, whispers to me like wings and beer tonight you in and i was like yeah sure uh re- yeah let's do that and then but we needed a shot of him of joe at a bar because kind of the whole idea was when he showed up to chicago that's the hazelton way shot in a beer and so joe comes up to me he's like how you guys doing what do you guys need what are you doing for dinner blah 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 and i was like All right, there's one thing we need we just need a shot of you like sitting at a bar with like like, you know, a beer and a shot in front of you. Like, you don't have to pound it or anything. Like, is that, like, like, would that be okay? And he said something like, um, it's like, Patrick, I don't give a shit, and you should know that about me by now. And it was just, like, <laughs> the most, like, Joe Madden answer of just, like, okay, follow me. I'm in this car. It's, you know, right out of the parking lot, left here. Uh, and it was great. He came over and... I had to ask him, like, one question on camera, so we got the shot of him actually at a bar. And then he went on, you know, the rest of his, his night. But uh, that was certainly, you know, an unforgettable 
time. And I think Joe has never really changed. And he's he I thought he handled last year with a lot of class and grace, which could have been an even more uh difficult situation. And he seems really happy as I'm sure you saw in, in Anaheim going back uh, going back home really in a lot of ways. So Yeah, he does. I, I was taken aback by how happy he was. And you're right. Like I, I actually think that both the Cubs and Joe handled last year pretty well outwardly. I don't know what happened <laughs> on the inside, but from yeah. the outside looking in, they seemed to to handle it. And and clearly this was a difference of an opinion and philosophy and an expiration date of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And now Joe, when I saw him in spring training, I it's a weird thing to say. Like I haven't seen him that happy in a while. Mm-hmm. And and he's very happy. Like he's running the whole show basically with the Angels. And he he wanted to be back in that red. He wanted to be with Artie Moreno. Like all of those things. And the Cubs wanted to move in a different direction managerially. So so I'm okay with that too. Like I I I don't know. I think sometimes, especially in sports radio, there's the the draw the draw to everyone has to pick a side. And someone has to be right and someone has to be wrong where it could just be this is just the end of this and now we're all move on from it. Yeah, I think – but there were definitely sides, you know what I mean? Like like you're saying, there was a clear uh, kind of philosophical differences by the end. There are some huge egos involved, some really – rich, accomplished, successful future Hall of Famers involved. And they did contain most of it because they did have a chance to win last year. And, you know, I don't know if they'll ever have it quite as good as they did here during that time, but it did not devolve into total, you know, chaos or finger pointing. And I think to your point about Joe, after he got hired by the Angels, a baseball person who had kind of watched that press conference said, you know, He's like, look at how Joe mentioned Billy Epler, who's essentially like a lame duck GM whose owner orchestrated all this to bring Joe back. And he said, look at Joe. You know, he pointed at Billy and kind of gave him some love at his during his press conference and kind of boosted him up. And you see that's how what he does with players of kind of knowing what to say at the right time and kind of easing some of that uncertainty like he did it you know on day one um as an angel and you're right it's different now that he is running the show that he is kind of the man there but that doesn't mean he has to change who he is nope sure doesn't what's covering a world a cubs world series like it's, it feels like a long time ago, right? It does. And that and that's <laughs> it's weird to say that like 4 years removed from it or I guess 3 and a half years removed from it, it does seem like a long time and it was so long in getting here that you would have never thought that it would be that far from your mind, but it does feel like that. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, I I didn't grow up in Chicago, so I didn't I certainly understood the magnitude of what was happening, but it was kind of important to take that step back and um you could see it just in people on the street when you're in 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 cleveland um just the atmosphere around there and i just tried to you know do 
I'm going to go all Joe Madden here, but, you know, treat, treat, you know, every game like it's April or, you know, October or, or May treated, treated the same. And that was to, you know, trying to take our readers beyond behind the scenes and to put it in a, a bigger picture. But, you know, at the same time, your heart is kind of racing knowing like there's probably not going to be a bigger sporting event you'll ever attend um, in your life. And it's just crazy to watch it looking back of, you know, what if they had lost? I mean, there was so many points were so close and that would, would have totally colored these next couple of years. I, mean, I don't know how they would have kind of come back from that. And uh, no doubt it was just a, a, a privilege to be there. And it was kind of fun to see if my first year was 2010. So I think I covered five managers in my first six years, something like that. Mm. So to see, wow. see, I mean, Lou, Quaddy, Swaim, Renteria, Madden, I think that was everyone. Um, So to see kind of the unwinding of the win one for the Tribune push and to see uh, Jim Hendry, uh, the end of his time there and how he handled everything with a lot of grace as well um, and remains just a hilarious character, as you know. Uh, And then to see... You know, a lot of the things that he had done in his regime and some of the scouts that were there and player development people had done a lot of good things. I mean, you can see it certainly in Javier Baez and Wilson Contreras. And then to see kind of what Theo did and how there were so many kind of, I think Jed calls them, you know, like sliding door moments of they could have, you know, if they had signed Annabelle Sanchez or if they had gotten Tanaka or, you know, if... uh Ryan Dempster approves a trade to Atlanta and all of a sudden they don't get Kyle Hendricks and they get Randall Delgado instead. So it was just kind of, it was a fascinating exercise from that perspective as someone who had kind of seen, I felt going back to your original question, why I didn't have the advantage of like growing up in Chicago and having, you know, a dad who was some long suffering Cubs fan. I did try to press my advantage of feeling like, you know, these six years or whatever, I was embedded with the team. I saw kind of how the previous era ended and how this all unfolded, and I tried to put that, you know, into perspective on a daily basis. Was it maybe an advantage for you that there wasn't an inherent connection to the Cubs losing, that you could see it with fairly fresh eyes? Yeah, I'd like to – I mean, you kind of work with what you got, and I know – you know, you've had Joe Cowley and Gordon Whitmire on here, and they are kind of, you know, outsiders, and I think that's really important. Um, that's a great perspective to have, to have those fresh set, set of eyes. And then, you know, reading someone like Paul Sullivan, who's, you know, as Chicago as it gets and just comes up with stuff that, like, you could never even think of, so you never even feel bad that you didn't write it because you're just, like, only, you know, he could think of that because he's a Chicago guy, and there are points of view that you have. Um you know, being at the score so long that are just kind of unique to to you and you kind of have to roll with that, you know? No, it's powerful, I, you know? A hundred percent. It's it's uh, It has been interesting because I was a producer. I started the score in 1998. I've been here a long time, Patrick. Um, <laughs> I started in 1998. I was producing in 2003. I was the morning show producer in 2003. And my host at the time, Mike Murphy, was – like the quintessential Cub fan on the air. So imagine what the day after Bartman was like (laughs) in, in pre-show meetings. It was in my, my partner, my, my, 
producing partner, Matt Abaticola, same way. Like, we were on the phone together thinking about, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do for the show. This is who we're going to talk to you. This is, so we're putting all this stuff together. And the Bartman thing happens. And he's like, I got to go. I have to go. I can't. I need to watch this now. And the next morning, it was... <laughs> I, I I can't even it's hard for me to even paint the picture, but trying to corral everything and the people that were calling the score that next morning, mm-hmm. you got to see the worst part of humanity front and center. You got to see people saying all sorts of crazy stuff. It gave me a real like some of it was uh, bone chilling, like some oh, of the, sure. some of the stuff that came across the scores phone lines that we screened out. You know, the people that we yeah, weren't yeah. going to let on the air because of some of the things that they had to say. And to go from that to the the Mike Quaddy year, you know, and then where you start to see Theo and the guys come in and just tear it to the ground and start over, and there being this refreshing sense of optimism that I think got maximized when they hired Joe. Yeah. Like they were moving in the right direction. There's no doubt about that. But then Joe pops up and basically is like, yeah, we can totally win. I'm going to have this glass of wine. We can totally win. And there's no reason why we can't. And they're seeing all of that happen in one space is pretty tremendous, and it's why I have a lot of respect for this group of Cubs because they did something that was really hard to do, and Theo doing what he said he was going to do when it seemed impossible I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of – it's easy to overlook – uh, what Joe meant when he showed up and how uncertain things were at that point of like how far would ownership go on free agents? Where was the payroll heading? Uh, I think Rick Renteria is a great man, but I think that year there were a lot of questions that they had about him uh, as a manager after Dale Swain was their handpicked manager. Um, you had... I'm trying to think in 14. I mean, Javi, I think, debuted towards the end of that year, but he struck out like, you know, 40% of the time, something like that. You didn't really know exactly what you had in, you know, Starlin or Rizzo, really. I mean, he had maybe had a good year or two. Um, maybe that's selling him short, but. He wasn't this. Yeah, there was not, you know, Chris Bryant was obviously a top pick, but, you know, there were kind of some comps that. We had heard of like, you know, Jason Worth or Troy Glouse, who guys who had outstanding major league careers, but the Cubs were not touting Chris Bryant like that. I mean, they were touting him as like a future Hall of Famer that was going to, you know, uh, kind of deliver a World Series trophy. So you do, you didn't know how these guys were going to respond. And I remember heading into that wild card game in Pittsburgh you know, someone connected to the team saying, you know, I think it's I think it's good if we play on the road. That I think it was still up in the air whether or not Pittsburgh would host or and this person connected to the teams that I think it would be best if we played 
on the road just to get away from Wrigley and the all those bar, all those kind of Bartman clips uh, that you're talking about here. So yeah, no doubt Joe showing up just instantly kind of changed the tone and certainly didn't hurt when they made their pitch to John Lester, the type of free agent that, as Theo said at the time, just doesn't sign with last place teams. That just doesn't happen except in really exceptional circumstances. Was there, did you ever have any attraction to another sport to cover? Is there anything else other than baseball for you? Uh, I mean, honestly, I got into it like just wanting to be a reporter. Like it kind of fell to baseball and I'm happy with that. I think, you know, I really like covering baseball. I wouldn't say I'm like, you know, uh, obsessed with baseball. Like I think if you want to do this, you have to be obsessed with whether you're sitting in your chair of like kind of the mechanics of what makes good radio. I think you have to be obsessed with journalism and that's kind of more what drew it to me. And I'm extremely lucky that I kind of wound up here, but I can't say there was like a grand plan to be, you know, a baseball beat writer. So you don't have any dreams of, I want to go cover the Super Bowl or I'd love to go cover NBA all-star game. Like you're happy with what you're covering. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious. I didn't know. Cause sometimes like you, and maybe you'll burn out on it. Like some, although baseball writers don't seem to. Like baseball writers, like you kind of stick around and stay in the sport for forever. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 we were joking about this when we were hanging out in Arizona that I'd pretty much heard all of Gordon's material when he came <laughs> on here. So it was like, all right, but uh, it is funny. I'm not to you know the the Gordon level of being around that long, but I'm definitely not like the youngest person there anymore. And it is kind of funny to see that at at this point, I don't really care about what I'm covering as much as, uh, you know, it's important for us at the athletic to continue to deliver good content and grow our business. And that's, that's kind of what interests me more than anything of, you know, kind of being a good, good employee and hoping that we can, you know, build an audience and, you know, keep doing what we're doing. You talked about media and I always talk about like where media is going. What concerns you as someone who's in, in this business for a decade, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you've worked hard on multiple platforms and you've seen the rise of video and how important that is. What concerns you about where the industry is and where it might be going? I guess I don't know if this is answering it directly, but I, I like I told you off off microphone is that term off camera. Um, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts. And I know that's kind of a, a very there are variations of that question that you've asked a lot of guests. I'm sure your students have the same. I think the what I've learned is you have to kind of the same skills or the same skepticism that you apply to the team or people you're covering, you have to use those same lenses towards the business you're in. And you have to look at the mm. trends. You have to look at the power dynamics. You have to see kind of who's up, who's down, and kind of where you fit in. And so that, to me, has for a really long time been my kind of guiding uh, organizing force of 
see where you're at, see who's in charge, see what they want and see what your competitors are doing and see where the business is heading. And that, you know, there are times where that can be concerning, but at the end, you just have to kind of do your best because people will notice. I mean, if it would be stupid, but if the score NBC let you go tomorrow, you would have a, you would have an enormous body of work that is one click away for anyone to access anywhere in the world. And that's really um, a compelling case for you as a, you know, media company. I mean, that's what this is now, right? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I I own a media company now. I own a very small niche uh, media company with House of L, which is a good thing. I actually have been kind of, you're right about making sure you keep the same level of skepticism with your own industry. We got into a conversation on the air today about Tony Romo. It's me, Joe, uh, a Herbie Campion. We were talking about Peyton Manning and Al Michaels because now that's the mm. rumor that the ESPN is going to try to go after them. What I think is interesting in both fronts is I with football, it kind of like the viewership I don't think is going to increase by such a big amount that it's worth it. I'm not saying that Tony Romo's not great at his job. I think he is great at it. I think Peyton Manning would be really great at it. But media companies often will tell people on the bottom or you know the mid-level to the bottom rung that there's no money. That there's no money to to do this feature. There's no money to make this trip. Why would you travel to go do this? We don't have that type of money. And then when you see that CBS as an organization has already committed almost $200 million for one broadcaster. And it would be similar for ESPN and probably closer to $300 million if you add Al Michaels and Peyton Manning to, to the mix. I don't think that it necessarily increases their bottom line. And I know that there are going to be people who are let go and not just people in front of the camera or names that you recognize that have to pick up the slack. And I... I keep wondering if a lot of these corporations are acting responsibly and if they're getting the bang for their buck for it. Like, are you going to be able to recoup the $180 million from Tony Romo? And could you have gotten the same thing with announcer X? It doesn't have to be announcer X for $2 million a year. Would it be worth it? Those are the types of things that go through my head. Yeah, I mean, part of it, I had just listened to Andrew Marchand, the uh, New York Post media columnist. He was on, I think, the morning show yesterday. But so that's kind of fresh in my mind. And I thought he summed it up well, because I was actually just talking about this with my dad. Like, do you ever turn on a game because of the announcer? And that goes for any sport, any. There are certainly broadcasts who enhance your viewing experience that you enjoy listening to. But it's all about the guys on the field. Right. I mean, have you ever been like, oh, well, Tony Romo is broadcasting. I'm going to watch, you know, the only football game that's on late Sunday afternoon. I feel that baseball has some of that. I think Maybe, that that's yeah. important in baseball. But in football, I, I can't make an argument for it. To yeah. me, there's no argument for I'm going to watch this game because Jim Nance is calling play by play. He's great. Yeah, I enjoy him. I think he's good at it. I love Tony Romo's analysis, but if the Bears are playing in the 325 spot on CBS, <laughs> it doesn't matter who's calling the game. 
everyone in Chicago is going to be watching that game. Yeah, the only thing I guess from their perspective would be if if this is the number one television show in America, I mean, when it wasn't absurd for like the people on Friends or Seinfeld to get like a million dollars an episode, and that's essentially what it's true that is. So, and if they want the Super Bowl, and if that makes sense, and they're, I guess that's what I what I was saying earlier to bring it back of like you have to know what the priorities are of where you're working and where Tony Romo is working, the NFL is king, and he is the lead dog on that show, and he fits into their you know broader corporate portfolio in a way that, you know, no one else would have. All I know is that two years from now, it'll be a headline. It'll be Andrew Marchand who has it. Like, <laughs> CBS cuts 200 people. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that, no, yeah. That's the type of thing that scares me. Last thing I have for you, I always ask guests about what students can learn. So if you were speaking, like, in front of my class and there's someone who wants to do what you do, how would you tell them they should go about trying to do it? That's a great question. I I honestly have no idea. Like, things keep changing so fast that um, to anticipate what that is, I guess that's what you have to do is anticipate kind of where it's going of kind of who's who's hiring and why are they hiring certain types of talent. Um I think it's great that there are different ways for people to get noticed in on social media or on websites that didn't really exist before. I think it's kind of sad that the way that Adam Johns or Scott Powers and I kind of came up or you at the Daily South Town taking scores or whatever, I'd, I'm not really sure that path exists anymore. And so I think it's really dangerous to like um, overgeneralize from your own specific experience because I don't think that path is particularly viable right now. I think it's more when you're kind of in that position, I think you just have to treat people with respect, be prepared. I mean, really, you know, basic, like, duh type things. But people notice when you're professional, when you're prepared, when you uh, do your homework, you can learn a lot from the people you're competing against. I'm assuming it's the same way in, in radio. Um, people who've been on your show, uh, I've learned a ton from them, whether it was watching Gordon or, or Cowley, um, Kelly Kroll, Tony, people I've worked with, like uh, Tony Androcki, like, you know, keep your your ears open. Um, that's the best way, like, if you're at Wrigley, you know, kind of pay, pay attention. And then um, something Moon Mullen had said of, you know, you can't worry about getting beat. Like, you have to kind of follow your own instincts. You'll just be chasing your tail if you're constantly worried about what um, everyone else is doing. And then I guess just finally, if you want to be in this business, you have to pay a, a lot of close attention to it. And that speaks to, you know, if you're – the skills you use as a beat writer, you have to kind of anticipate what these companies are going to be doing, where there might be uh, openings. That's kind of how I landed at NBC or sorry, at Comcast at the time of ESPN was starting. And I kind of sent out a cover letter uh, to TK Gore and then Phil Bedella at the time. Uh, he was on path to becoming GM and, those guys kind of saw 
um, what ESPN was doing locally and felt like they needed to invest and kind of build out the website. And like, it was just kind of, you know, dumb luck of, you know, TK is kind of starting and gets my cover letter and my resume and kind of was, I wasn't hired right away, but it was like, uh, I guess put to the side of like, okay, that's kind of interesting. And, you know, not that you can bank on cover letters, but it was like, that was one of say maybe 20 cover letters or 30 cover letters I had sent out to, you know, places I thought that might be looking for, you know, my type of skills or, or coverage. And, you know, I'm eternally grateful for them for giving me a chance to basically go from covering high schools to covering the Cubs. And like, I mean, it's absurd to look back on it, like being in the booth with Lennon JD, like only months after, you know, covering like the state baseball finals. So like you you have to get lucky and there's no way of explaining like why, why that happened or, you know, um, but you once you get there you have to really be grateful for it and that's why you know i feel like you'd be taken away uh at any time and you have to be prepared for that um because other places will notice what you're doing moon's mentorship seems to mean a lot to you you brought it up multiple times in our conversation why do you think that the advice that he's given you is stuck with you uh i mean i don't want to um I think he just uh, was one of the first people I met there and was just, he had a great demeanor um, and it fit into a broader um, set of people at that time that whether it was Gordon or Sully or Bruce Miles or Kerry Muscat um, were all very, I mean, Mark Gonzalez, I'm going to miss some people, but everyone was really good to me when I first started. Uh, they did not look at me sideways. That was the same way on the TV side, whether it was Dave Kaplan or Luke Stuckmeyer or, or you know, I'm going to forget someone, but, uh, you know, people really, you know, gave me a chance and, uh, you know, didn't <laughs> blow me up, uh, you know, when I inevitably made mistakes. And I think that, um, you know, that's kind of the, you kind of threw me off this question, but no, I, it's really something that I have not forgotten. I hope that I'm, you know, not a jerk to other people, but I try to keep that in mind of just, you know, everyone starts somewhere. Right. And, um, there were a lot of people, including moon, um, who, <laughs> when we went on this arranged lunch, which just turned out to be like ordering beers and wine <laughs> at like, and it was one of those when you walk out, when you walk out of a bar and it's still like daylight out and it was like one of those January days where it's like super sunny outside and we only had like two or three drinks, but it was just like hilarious to just listen to moon. Um, as someone who didn't come from a pure journalism background, who has lived a very interesting life, um, and had a great perspective on things and had done it at a really high level at a bunch of different places. Uh, you know, it's invaluable. He's he was uh he's a big inspiration for me too. Mm-hmm. He was extremely kind and yes. gracious when I started covering the Bears. And I knew that I was doing things right when he said that I had reached dangerous man status <laughs> in the locker room. So um I have a, a great appreciation for him and seeing him teach, because he teaches at DePaul as well, mm-hmm. 
it's amazing because it's some of the kernels that he drops on the students is pretty stuff that they'll that they'll have like to to build their foundation of their careers on. Yeah. And that's the type of educator that you want and that's the type of mentor that you want. Like those are important important steps along the way when it comes to trying to succeed in a business that can sometimes sometimes you do end up learning stuff. You learn what not to do. Yeah, no doubt. Or no how doubt. not to treat people. Yeah. Uh, from from bad experiences, it's always good to have the the good ones to be like, ah, see, there's a shining example of the way that I should approach this if this ever comes up. So shout out to Moon. I'm a big fan of Moon. Love Moon. I haven't had Moon on here yet. That's crazy. He should be on the hit list. I haven't I haven't talked to him in a bit. Um but yeah, there are there are literally things that he said in I want to say January twenty ten that still echo in the back of my head. Uh, now in terms of how to approach a beat day to day, which is, uh, and I have told him this, so I feel good about good about that. And he kind of brushes it brushes of course it off. He does. Um, but uh, yeah, just a, just a, a a great great dude, Patrick. I appreciate your time. Thank you for on your trip back from from spring training and making room for. No, this for, is the time to do it. I'm happy to. Thank you so much for this. You got it. I know Patrick has heard this before, but his cadence and vocabulary and rhythm of speech is very similar to Theo Epstein's. It's not that weird considering how smart both those guys are, but it's very similar when you listen to both guys. It'd be If I told you that that was Theo Epstein, you would be like, oh, I can hear it. I could absolutely hear it. So thank you to Patrick for being on the podcast. Check out his work, man. He's doing great, great work on The Athletic. There's all sorts of archival stuff that if you want to go take a look at, we're all in a weird place right now because you don't even know what to cover because most of these facilities are closed and it's it's a weird, weird, weird time. Follow him on Twitter at PJ, PJ underscore Mooney if you want to see some of the, the stuff that he's been working on. I'm glad that he had time that we were able to make it work while he was in town hanging out and getting some rest. And I'm very pleased that he gave a little bit of his rest time to this silly little podcast. Time for an email. You can still email the podcast house of L podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's house of L podcast at gmail.com. It's from Chris who says, Lawrence, First off, I just want to say I love the podcast. It's one of the two that I keep in my rotation that's not about Star Trek or the podcast form of sports shows I missed previous day. I love hearing about media folks in Chicago, but I enjoy most are the ones you dive into the geek side of life. Like you, I'm a lifelong Trekkie. I really can't wait for you to get Maggie Hendricks to sit down with you so you two can geek out over Trek. That's a really good idea. I, I also just really like Maggie. Like, she's... Legit one of my favorite people. And it's not because she makes incredible cookies and brings me like my own little tent of cookies. Although that plays a role. We're also birthday buddies, so we usually celebrate our birthdays together for the last couple of years. But yeah, she's also big into Star Trek and and even got me a feature story on Star Trek.com, which was amazing. Like that's I would have never thought that that happened. Back to Chris's email. He says, I have the luxury of working at a job where I can have other people listen to what I am. 
It's always great knowing that I have great content each week from this podcast to listen to and share. If you ever want to talk about Trek, let me know, man. Keep grinding and bringing your perspective and love for everything that makes us realize we're all geeks, no matter what the flavor. That's from Chris. Chris, thanks. I appreciate you reaching out and sending an email my way. And you're right. I should probably get Maggie on sooner rather than later. I mean, there's no reason not to. Like, She's one of my favorite people. She understands the whole point of the podcast. She's led a very interesting media career from covering the UFC to going back and forth verbally with Joe Rogan and Dana White and all sorts of stuff. So it's a good idea. It's a good. Re- Thanks for the reminder to get Maggie on the podcast. I'm, I'm going to do that soon. And thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, who's been listening to this podcast. And look, I keep trying to remind people, it's not just the episode that I put out that week. Like, go back and look at some of the people that we've had on this podcast because it's pretty amazing. Some of the folks, like, I was scrolling back because I think I'm going to play some chunks on the air over the next couple of weeks. Go back and listen to some of these interviews, man. The Mark Grody one, the Sierra Santos one, Layla Rahimi, all the way back in episode three, Cheryl Scott. Like, really tremendous perspectives on this stuff. All over the place. The Barry Rosner episode. There's so much good stuff. But thanks for your support of the podcast. And I know that people are looking to have as much content available to them as possible. And I'm trying to provide that for them. This is free. All I ask you for is time. Put on some headphones and vibe out. Episode 100 next week. I'm really looking forward to introducing you to my best friend, Afia Uwusu, who's going to be the guest. We finished up our conversation. It's locked and loaded. It'll be episode 100 because if it wasn't, she would punch me in the throat. You'll hear our friendship play out on the podcast next week. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Peace.